Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast. We are on episode number 52. My name is Dominic. I am one of the co-hosts of the show. The other co-host's name is Janus. Um, FYI, I've been pronouncing it Janus for 51 episodes. And he came to me and he's like, Hey, can you start pronouncing the name right? It's Janus, not Janus. So, um... Better late than never, I guess. Anyway, um, today we speak to Dr. Megan Rose. Dr. Rose is a transformational psychologist who holds a doctorate in East-West Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies and a master's degree in Religion in Society from the Graduate Theological Union. You can find her at uh, www.drmeganrose, M-E-G-A-N, Dot com, and we are going to be talking about uh, her new book, Spirit Marriage, Intimate Relationships with Otherworldly Beings. And as the title suggests, it's about uh, spiritual relationships, spiritual marriage, very interesting topic. As always, we have to say thank you to our Patreon supporters for joining us on this journey walking with us side by side and keeping the lights on and the show running. So thank you for partnering with us. If you would like to contribute to this project, head over to Patreon, look us up, and uh, do what you can. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius, and may any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. the show everyone we are delighted to have dr megan rose with us today she's here to discuss her new book as well as just the general topic of spirit marriage what that means um, and everything that comes with it Uh, thanks for agreeing to come on the show dr rose thank you it's a pleasure to be here and you can just call me megan okay cool all right so if you could give us a little bit about your background academically as well as spiritually if you're comfortable with that and and we'll go from there. Certainly, yeah. Well, it's interesting because the spiritual sort of led me to the academic. So I think I'll um, start there. And I talk about this in, in great depth in the book, but sort of the high-level Reader's Digest version is that I was raised uh, in the Pentecostal Christian church. 
So we're talking, you know, speaking in tongues, laying on of hands, uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And <clears throat> that experience really shaped me as a child, as a mystic, as a, um, a seeker. Uh, because that, you know, in the culture that I was raised in, you were in church twice on Sunday, once on Wednesday, and probably a Friday night or two a month. And um, I was, I am a highly sensitive person. I was a highly sensitive child. So those ecstatic experiences, right, of being filled with the Holy Spirit, which I should say started for me when I was less than a year, year old. Um, I had an illness and um, my family laid hands on me and prayed the Holy Spirit into my body and, um, and the illness was healed, but I was also really altered, um, really opened wide up uh, for all of the numinous encounters that I would experience growing up and later in life. Um, from, you know, before I could even talk about it, right? So I, I'm sort of this kid walking around with her hair on fire, um, talking about, you know, being spirit filled to pretty much anybody that would listen to me. Um, and that was really the frame that I had for it, right? It was this very Christian frame. However, I also noticed that I would feel that same ecstasis, that same filling of the Holy Spirit when I was out in nature. And later on, when I would um, become sexually active, I would realize that 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 sense of being filled with Holy Spirit was really erotic. Um, but I didn't, you know, as a kid, I just knew that it sort of lit me up like a Christmas tree. And so uh, when I got into college and then graduate school, I became really fascinated with ecstatic embodied spirituality. What was it that was this animating, vitalizing, potent force that I understood um, growing up to be the Holy Spirit, but that really became synonymous with also with being out in nature and with encountering, um, you know, vast uh intelligences in in the terroir in the terrain that I was growing up in and that was you know redwood and ocean I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area so lots of contact with redwood and giant ancient oak tree and then being at the ocean that filled me with that same sort of spine tingly um awakening and so I decided after college to uh, really try to study this, try and figure out what it was that I was experiencing that wasn't tied to Christianity. I mean, by the time I was in college, I was fairly disenchanted with Pentecostalism and Christianity. And so I was looking for more of an interfaith, transcultural experience of this. And so I went to seminary, I went to the Graduate Theological Union to do a master's in religion and um, specifically religion and society and really understanding those shaping forces that, um, that underpin so many of our world's religion and religions. And so uh, in seminary, I continued to study embodied spirituality and specifically at that point through the Center for Women in Religion 
The Graduate Theological Union, the GTU, is a consortium of different seminaries. And the Center for Women in Religion was sort of like a subset within the seminary. Um, so it wasn't its own seminary. It was kind of this, this body of um, teachers and, and um, students that were particularly looking at women's spirituality. So in any event, I, um, I went to the graduate, graduate Theological Union. I got involved in women's spirituality. That led me um, pretty quickly into things like witchcraft and the occult and um, esoteric spiritualities indigenous spiritualities. And that's really where I began to unpack this idea of spirit and being spirit filled um, in a very um, interreligious and very embodied spiritual approach and place. And um, after seminary, I went through a kind of seven year journey that I call my dark night of the soul. And that really caused me, it cracked me open in a lot of ways and caused me to seek really in earnest psycho-spiritual forms of healing, sort of after that arduous journey into kind of like the underworld or my the sort of depths of my psyche. I really wanted to remember and refashion things in a way that um, would help me configure my, my psycho-emotional and magical body in a new way um, as, as a kind of healing, as a kind of reclaiming. Um, the underworld journey was, was just very dismantling, as many underworld journeys are, dismantling of all those things. And so it was sort of this opportunity for me to kind of put myself back together. And um, I began to study... Um, ceremonial magic and initiate into ceremonial magic as one of the tools to help me kind of refashion and reconstitute things. Um, I also began to study erotic spirituality through specifically through the frame of um, both sex magic, but also uh, Shakta Tantra. So goddess centered Tantra. And then eventually was led into my current research um, and what the book is about, which is spirit marriage. And that is the intimate bonded relationship between a human and an otherworldly or an extraordinary being. And it was the poking uh, or the kind of prodding of spirit um, that got me into that research in the first place. The experience that I was having of being contacted by this um, very erotic, vitalizing spirit that began first as a spirit lover and then eventually became um, a kind of spirit beloved that was wooing me and, and began to ask me to marry it. And, you know, at the time, this is 20 some odd years ago, I didn't really have a context for that. I didn't know about spirit marriage. I knew sort of um, anthropologically and historically that there is record of that kind of practice from my seminary studies when, you know, we were look, talking about like the Nephilim and the Gregory and the, um, the watchers uh, in the Christian accounts and, and some of Mircea Eliade's research um, with shamans. But I didn't know that it was still happening. And so I became fascinated by this 
idea that it could, con- you know, contemporary practitioners could be having these experiences and, you know, for, for what reason, why was kind of what I was asking myself. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I, and I love how your um, practical experiences were kind of interwoven with your, your academic studies. Um, I think that adds like an extra layer of depth to the whole thing, which is great. Um, I also, going back a minute, you, you mentioned the Redwood Forests. I have to kind of second that. Um, I recently went went there not too long ago, and it's quite uh, a magnificent um, place, quite a spiritual experience. So if anyone is in the area and able to go, I would definitely recommend that. As far as spirit marriage, I have to be honest. Initially, I was, I was kind of raised my eyebrow. I'm like, what what is this all about? But then pretty quickly, I realized well, okay, Mary, mother of Christ, had, you know, she was impregnated by spirit. Um, then there's the the angels in relationship with women in the book of Enoch, like you mentioned. Um, then there's the story of Merlin. Then there's pretty much almost any story involving Zeus. So it really is kind of baked into the fabric of our society and almost hidden in plain sight, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. That's actually one of the chapters in my book title hidden in plain sight um because it 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 really is it it is part of the foundational myths of many 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 cultures and religions as you mentioned christianity it's in judaism and islam and um uh, many earth-based spiritualities as well as you know the the first recorded accounts of spirit marriage um are in the ancient Mesopotamian texts on the sacred marriage between the priests and the priestesses of um, Ishtar and Nana, um, where they're married to her and, and serve at her, you know, behest in the, in the temples there. So I suspect that this practice predates, you know, written accounts um, in any culture and that it is part of certainly our mythology um, many cosmologies and, you know, as you see in my book, um, many, many contemporary practitioners are still stepping into these kinds of devotional bonded relationships with spirit. And it's not just, it's not just a Western thing. It's, it's, you know, transcultural from the um, Chinese tales of uh, descent from the fox, fox spirit to the Indic accounts of marrying the yogini or um, in the accounts of like the Devadasi who marry the, the deity and serve in the temple of uh, Jagannath, uh, Africa, Europe, South America, Central America, North America. I mean, it's just my, my research, which I'm still collecting stories because, you know, I'm, continuing to find accounts, either historical, anthropological, or contemporary, that talk about this practice as um, typically a way in which um, extraordinary or esoteric gifts and um, powers or insights are passed from the other world to humans. For you, what what are the most compelling stories that that really point to like a, a real life, not just mythological, but kind of a real life um, expression of this? One of my favorite is um, the story of uh, King Numa, 
Pompilius of Rome, who was the first Sabian king of Rome. And um, his story is, is fascinating because that he talks about uh, his spirit wife, Egeria, who was a nymph, and how she helped not only negotiate between him and the, the deities, um, but also helped dictate to him the first rules or the first laws of that Roman, um, the first Roman laws that were established under his, under his kingship. And so, you know, here's a historical figure who we have, you know, historical record of that is crediting like, like others um, in like ancient Greece and um, ancient Rome, Plato, Socrates, uh, many, many of our Western philosophic figures talk about tutelary spirits, the daimon, the guiding spirit. And what I like to say is spirit marriage is an aspect of having a tutelary or guiding spirit in that it becomes a more bonded. And when you look at it in contemporary accounts, it, it, it tends to skew to the uh, indwelled or co-walking or merged consciousness versus kind of a, a guiding spirit that pops in and out or um, is considered to be a little more separate. So uh, the way I describe it is, is spirit communication or otherworldly communication is kind of the spectrum that goes anywhere from doing specific divinatory work or communicating with a, a, a being, an entity, whatever. So a tutelary spirit that, that you're sort of appealing to that may be around, may not be around, comes and goes or functions in a kind of, you know, media mystic capability where they come in, they come out or channeling or possession um, and then the more deeply bonded or devotional practices, what would fall into the auspices of the spirit lover or um, all the way to the spirit marriage. In my mind, it's a little more of an advanced practice in that you have found a being or the being has found you or beings because that spirit marriage practices tend to be kind of inherently polyamorous for many, many people. Um and you have stepped into a committed, bonded relationship with that entity, which you tend, just like any other committed, bonded relationship would be tended in your life. So it requires devotion. It requires discipline. It requires discernment of really learning the touch or the, the sound of that specific um, being, spirit, deity, angel, um, etc. that you're working with. Um, and I use the term spirit because it's sort of the biggest, most generic catch-all term that, that I could find um, to describe these otherworldly beings. Um, but really, you know, in my research and in um, the accounts that I collected, it's a wide range of non-physical non-currently human incarnate beings um, from nature spirits to deities, angels, beloved dead, ancestors, 
um, and the list goes on and on. And I think it's important, for, especially for our listeners, although most of our listeners probably are not of this ilk, to clarify that when you're using the term spirit, you don't mean it in that um, banal um, new age Instagram sense of just this vague milk toast blanket term. It's actually referring to specific spirits in the plural, which are distinct uh, distinct entities with independent existence. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. We're talking about, um, I like the term intelligences uh, because that it connotes a sense of agency and volition and will and um, identity that these beings hold. They may not have a physical human incarnation, but they are a someone. In fact, uh, the Vodou Mumbo that I interviewed uh, from New Orleans said, you know, you are in a relationship with a someone. They may not be physically incarnate, but they are um, a, a being and uh, have to be respected and treated as such. And um, RJ Stewart, who is a Scottish fairy seer, puts it this way when he talks about, you know, the fairy people, he said, uh, and working with spirits in general, we do things that they can't, but they do things that we can't. And so there's this co-creative and that kind of brings me into the contemporary examples that I collected. I talked to about nine different practitioners, uh, contemporary practitioners who are married to spirits in various different traditions, seven different traditions from, um, very seership to uh, both Haitian and New Orleans voodoo, uh, Shakti Tantra, ceremonial magic, uh, the West African uh, Dagara tradition. And each of these different practitioners, they might have ha- had slightly different language. Some call them indwelling, some call them merging, some call it a marriage. And they might have slightly different mechanics or techniques for stepping into those participatory relationships, but it was fascinating to see these people tell me their stories and to, to receive the stories and, and hear some of the same experiences, some of the same ways in which that they had come to terms with the nature of the relationship that they were in, what was being required of them, what they were asking in exchange. There was a lot of similarities. I would say there was probably more similarities than differences. And I thought that was, you know, as a researcher, I thought that was fascinating because that, you know, we're talking about people who aren't really talking to each other, right. About these experiences necessarily, and didn't have a lot of source material. You know, my book is one of the first pieces of serious scholarly research being done on this. So it's not like they're reading a lot of, you know, handbooks that's um, sort of, presupposing what they should be or you know that sort of like subliminally suggesting what they should be experiencing what are some of the uh what are some of those similarities the the, the most striking to you and interesting because that is fascinating the, one of the similarities that i just thought was so beautiful and useful was the idea of negotiation so i think that you know, as you mentioned with the more um, superficial, some of this more superficial new age material, 
there can be this idea that if you're being approached by these otherworldly beings that are benevolent, that you sort of like lay down and just like, okay, just take the reins and guide me and, you know, tell me what you want me to do. And I'm just here as (laughs) an instrument. And um, that is not the experience of a, for lack of a better word, mature spirit worker. The, the, people that I interviewed talked about throwing fits, pushing back, saying no, setting boundaries. I mean, frankly, all of the things that you would do in a relationship with another person that you needed to establish your your sovereignty with, right? There are like I said, there are things that we can do that they can't and they need us and we need them. And so really understanding what you bring to the table, I think is, is of paramount importance. And it doesn't mean that these beings aren't vast and intelligent and have um, vision or reach beyond what we do in our sort of limited time space that, that humans are kind of by and large constrained by, but it does mean that we really, our metal gets tested as far as understanding that we have to set the boundaries and, and set the conditions or um, create the ritual container for the relationship so that so that we can function, right? I talk a lot about in my practice about a a safe, sane, and grounded spirituality. And I think that this is really um, one of the key practices is setting boundaries around um, spiritual practice so that it is um, vitalizing and enlivening and not pulling us, untethering us, untethering us from our ability to like, function in the in the default world which can you know easily happen when you're working with with uh, spirit work and spirit contact and um depending on your your innate disposition forgive me for my interjection but i would like to back up a little bit um so i want to go back to the beginning here uh because i have a few things i want to touch on and then i have another a uh, couple of points I'd like to explore. The first one is that you let in by describing the experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to ask you what that means, what that uh, feels like in terms of the psychosomatic component of it, as well as your uh, further development of that point, which is that it has an inherently erotic component, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm interested in hearing about what that actually, what that experience looks like, what it, what it feels like, what is the sensory experience of it, what does it feel like in the realm of the mind, and how then were you led to associate that with a, a feeling of eros? Let me first start by saying that being filled with the Holy Spirit, um, you know, through the lens of fundamentalist or Pentecostal Christianity is that practice primarily of speaking in tongues. So we're talking about kind of a form of channeling, uh, laying on of hands, which is kind of a form of energy healing or, or um, somatic 
energy body healing, sometimes dancing in the spirit, although that was kind of discouraged, but it is a possessory state by and large, uh, whether the Christians want to cop to that or not. Uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit is essentially being possessed by this extraordinary, uh, and you think of, you know, the stories of Pentecost, it's fire. It's this fiery, fiery energy. So, you know, different from other kinds of possession, but in the, through the lens of Pentecostal Christianity, Pentecost is about fire and the Holy Spirit descended like tongues of flame, they said, were on top. So fire in the head would also be an apt metaphor, which you, um, here in uh, some of the Celtic traditions, the fire in the head. So that was very much my somatic experience as a child was being a flame, but also being in this semi-trance possessed sort of space where you're open. And in this case, you've invoked this fiery energy to sort of blaze through you, um, which I felt very keenly in my nervous system, in my spinal column, and in my pineal pituitary gland complex. I didn't know that that's where I was feeling, you know, that that's where those places were called as a child, but that's certainly what I was, was feeling. Um, later in life, when I uh, would encounter sacred sexuality and sex magic practices, um, and would experience the kind of um, shakti or orgon energy that would rise through my body through orgasm, felt very much, very similar to what I felt as a child with that Holy Spirit fire energy. So often starting in the bottoms of the feet or in the base of the torso, rising up through the central channel, so, you know, I've studied yoga and I often interpret this through the lens of, of um, the Kundalini Shakti, rising up through the central nervous system and sort of exploding at the brain or at the, the, the crown. So it's that kind of up and out energy um, that was, again, very similar to the, the Holy Spirit kind of possession and became a hallmark for me of when I was having an encounter with my spirit beloved. Um, and that's not necessarily the same somatic experience that everyone is going to have. Let me just be really clear. That's how my body registers when I'm having a um, erotic spirit encounter. So you're kind of, uh, you're kind of describing the um, ascent of a fiery energy of spiritual ecstasy, which is both uh, intrapsychic and physical, that is radiant in nature and puts you into an altered state of consciousness. Would you say that's accurate? I'd say that's very accurate. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, um, your body goes into exaltation. My body goes into exaltation. Um, there's Kriya. Um, sometimes there's, um, there's tears or uh, the bhava of emotion is really, really strong. And, you know, later as I began to train as a tantric, I learned not to just let it go up and, and out, right, and just sort of dissipate out. But my ceremonial magic work, my tantric work really helped me learn um, what Mantak Chia calls the microcosmic orbit or what many shaktas called 
back down and in. So it becomes this bi-directional circuit of up and down and around. Like the caduceus. Exactly. I was just going to say, and you see that in some of the alchemical texts of um, the caduceus and the sun and moon and the sort of integration, right, of, um, I don't even want to say masculine and feminine, um, because that can get into like a lot of binaries, but the sun, moon, the the dark, the light, this very integrative or, or holistic way of um, uh, psychosexual transformation. Okay. That's a very articulate explication of your position. I appreciate you taking the time to go into more depth. My next question for you, uh, it, it goes towards the point of you've spoken a bit on how in some contexts we're dealing with an indwelling spirit in other contexts we're dealing with an objective external intelligence my understanding of spirit magic spirit marriage excuse me well i guess it's magic but my understanding of spirit marriage in its traditional and indigenous forms is that it is always with uh, an objective external independently existent intelligence or spirit uh, and often, more often than not, whether it's in the context of a medicine, you know, I hate to use the term shaman, but that's what we have, shaman or in voodoo or in anything like that. It's usually contractual in nature, just like a typical marriage. Um, so I'm just wondering for you, is, are those boundaries as hard or is this sort of indwelling spirit that's actually a part of you? I mean, is that really a form of spirit marriage? Is it, is it valid to call it marriage when we're dealing with, say, the daimon, which is an interior intelligence that forms a greater part of the higher uh, sort of constellation of the self, whereas opposed yeah. to we're dealing with, like, when you're married to a lua, it's like you're married to a person. I mean, you, that is a, like, you know, they're like people. It's not like some, it's not your, um, it's not your genius. It is an, a, it, it's a separate being who has expectations of you just like a, just like a husband or wife would. Yeah, no, it's great. And uh, that's a great question. And I went around and around with this in my research. Um, first of all, with the indweller, at least as it was explained and described to me that the indwelling is something that is invited in. So it can be a separate intelligence, but um, indwelling is that intelligence comes in and indwells or merges with you. So, but I, I don't think that that's a hard and fast distinction. I think that some would say the indweller is something that's innately part of your internal, um, uh, your internal your internal cosmology uh, or constellation of, of beings that, that are innately a part of you. So the interesting thing is when I first began my research, I thought, you know, is this knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel a kind of spirit marriage? It is um, certainly seen as not and not it is definitely not seen as a separate intelligence like a loa depending on who you talk to but it is something that is 
beyond oneself that one must go in devotion and perseverance to develop a connection to. Kind of what I like to use the term of as the divine self. And so at first I thought, well, that you could marry the divinity that you are here to perhaps be an expression of. That seems like something that might be possible. I've heard it referred, you know, the the idea of the Ishta Devi or Ishta Devata in the um, tantric traditions um, and the in the Indic traditions where one finds their chosen deity. Um, and I'm not saying that all of these things are synonymous, the Holy Garden Angel, the Ishta Deva, or even the Matet, right? The Matet in the Loa traditions, the, the patron saint. May I stop you for a minute? Could you just articulate for our audience what the Ishta Devata is? Certainly, yeah. The Ishta Devi or the Ishta Devata is the one's chosen deity. So that's in the Indic context, the deity that... Um, that you choose or that often chooses you that you are in a bhakti devotional relationship with. And that deity may be the same deity for your whole life. It may be the deity that you inherited because of your family's uh, lineage or tradition. Um, It may be a deity that like a patron saint deity comes in at the times you need it and it can shift and change. And, um, so there's some similarity to the, the, the way that the Matet functions, as I understand it, because I'm not a Vodou practitioner. There is some similarity to how the Matet functions in the Vodou tradition. And with the, with the Ishta Devata, it, it's usually installed in the, in the Anahata chakra. Uh, yes, but it also, um, depending on the tradition you're working in, it can show up above the crown. Like a star. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I was curious about, you know, what is the relationship if something is more intra-psychic versus, you know, what is the internal versus external um, dialectic here? And so I just was curious about it as I was collecting my research and, and exploring it. And, and I, it's why I decided to include a ceremonial magician in my, um, my research as one of my research co-researchers or research participants uh, who had achieved knowledge in conversation with the Holy guardian angel, because I was trying to understand how might this be similar? How might it be different? And what I discovered was that, for example, in the tantric context, the Shakta tantric that I interviewed is both married to the goddess Adyakali and Adyakali is her Ishta Deva. So here we are, Devi. So here we have an example of someone who is married to and an embodiment of Adyakali. And I thought that was fascinating because that you know all of the ceremonial magicians that I had been talking to up until that point said, "Well, you would never marry your holy guardian angel. That's a that's a different working. That's a different." practice it's, it's it's apples and oranges but here you know if we trot over to the indic context here is an example of someone who's doing i won't say just that because again ceremonial magic and shakta tantra have different although some overlapping but different um 
lineages and traditions. But here's an example of someone who's doing something similar to that. And so I think that I tend to, going back to, way back to your original question of like, do I think it's more fluid? I think that there is some interesting fluidity there. And it really uh, comes down to what tradition you're sitting in, what practices you're undertaking, and how you view your relationship with your divine self versus um, more external. I kind of think of the divine self as, um, or the the holy guardian angel. These these vast intelligences, which which are unique to us, but also we are sort of a fractal of. Uh, I like to describe it as we're sort of the fingertip of this intelligence reaching into the physical world, and we get to push things around and make things and change things in the very physical embodied. Um, And then we sort of move back into more of the, um, the, the numinous, the, the vaster uh, embodied space of these um, intelligences that constellate as deities or other, other intelligence forms yeah, because I, I think it's important also to not muddy the waters. And I appreciate how you're retaining the distinctions here because the the daimon, the 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 good daimon, the benevolent genius, the holy guardian angel, this is something that is not necessary. it's 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 couched in a language of paradox where it, it is us, but if it's not us, yeah, um, you know, it it is it, it it's something it's something you could say is, again, it does have its own objective existence and independent intelligence, but at the same time, there is something intimately of us, which is why in Gnosticism it's called the, the light twin. Whereas when you're dealing with the spirit, a spirit of nature like the Lua uh, or the spirits that shamans will get into marriage with and things like that, I mean, you're dealing with a being that really wasn't part of you wasn't isn't isn't you you know you're dealing with the being that it's 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 a per it's just a non-physical person it's a it's a non you it's it's i wouldn't i won't even say non-human because it could be a it could be a discarnate human but it's a non-physical person that you're involved with yeah And, um, and what what even gets more interesting then is for example in the story of madrone the west african shrine keeper her spirit husband um dingan uh, one of the the requirements for their marriage was that she actually find a redwood tree, or it didn't have to be a redwood tree, but she had to find a tree that would host and become the sort of physical manifestation of Tingon for her. Um, and that's how that cosmology works. There's often, um, and you see this in the theurgic practices, uh, using the morti or the statue, right, as the sort of live embodiment then of that intelligence or that deity. Um, and so in her case, she's got this living, gorgeous, growing redwood tree that is um, has been installed with the, the Tingan energy. And um, so she's actually relating to something that is physical, right, as, as her spirit spouse, but, um, but is also connected to this vaster um, understanding of what the spirit of Tingan in that particular um, spiritual technology and spiritual system is doing. Mm. 
Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really creating a, a manifestation in the physical universe, a point of grounding or a body really for the spirit, which is, yeah, which is something you see in theurgy. You really see it all over the place in the world. Mm-hmm. So there is something that concerns me, not about what you're talking about, but just in general. I, you see it more, I think, in the American neo-pagan subculture, which ultimately is informed by American Protestantism in its ideas and attitudes. Um, you know, there's a lot of wishful thinking, a lot of imaginary playtime, and uh, people latch on to ideas like this and then will tell themselves that they're married to a deity or married to a spirit or something like that, or that they're a priest or priestess of some spirit, but it's really play acting. And it's, um, it's pretty frustrating to encounter and it's filters into now the online culture with the Instagram culture and all of that. And I think that it's important to emphasize the gravity, the seriousness of becoming involved with the spirit in, in this way, the, the contractual commitments that are often involved with this. And uh, sometimes the dangers or perils of disregarding this kind of relationship, if you have entered into it. And I was wondering if you could speak on that, because as far as I understand, um, there, are, there are blessings, but it's not something you can just walk away from for the next fat. No, it is in some cases a kind of rewiring and reshaping of who you are to make space for this or to be remade into something new that is not just you anymore, but you and this spirit that, and that is in, for example, in the the folkloric fairy rite of the fairy marriage, that's what happens is you become a new third thing. Um, and that is that bond is for the rest of your life, perhaps for lifetimes after that. Um, it's not necessarily the case for every spirit that you might um, potentially marry. And again, it really comes down to what is the spirit that you're being that that either you're being contacted by or that you're contacting. What is their agenda? What is the nature and the agreements of your relationship? Um, but it is definitely not something to be taken lightly. And what, you know, what I recommend when people ask me, well, what should I do? I feel like I'm being contacted or I'm drawn into this or I'm interested in it. And the first thing I, I encourage people to do is find a mentor. I, that's what I did. Um, I knew that there was the potential for for danger in as much as I didn't know what I was doing being drawn into a marriage. Um, and I didn't know what the protocol was for it. I didn't know. I didn't want to just say yes. So, you know, I should back up and say that the spirit that proposed to me, it took me almost 15 years to say yes. So I went through, and those were the 15 years that I was doing the research, writing the dissertation. So this entire research which was my dissertation and then became the book, was my vetting of this spirit and really trying to understand what I was agreeing to, why I might want to agree to it, how the mechanics worked, what was going to be expected of me, right? So I did all this 
very exhaustive being an academic, this very exhaustive due diligence to try and make sure that I really understood what I was, was getting into. And the first thing that I did was got the mentor. I found um, a mentor in uh, Orion Foxwood, who uh, is in the fairy seership tradition, because that seemed to be where my spirit was originating from, that, that cosmology. Um, and I had a really amazing psychotherapist who also had a training or background in visionary spirituality. And so she wasn't going to dismiss these, ex these extraordinary experiences that I was having as, you know, just make believe she was going to listen to me and consider them and take them seriously. Um, and, and so, you know, those two people, uh, in addition to my Shakti Tantric teachers and um, other mentors and trainings that I was doing really helped me create a solid foundation and a solid practice for myself uh, because that I wasn't being called into a tradition like the Vodou tradition that has already really great protocols and practices and a cultural matrix that was going to hold me. I was sort of coming at it from a, a more ancestral spirit that I was working with. And I had to navigate and find the, the people and the tools that could help me understand and uphold who this spirit was. So that's sort of the discernment piece, which really became front and center is discerning what, discerning the spirit from your own inner aspects or your own, as you were saying, imaginative or wishful thinking and really getting good uh, with your rituals and your divinatory practices to understand um, contact versus imagination. And imagination is a, you know, I, I don't want to discount the importance of being able to use the imaginal realm and use the visionary tools that, that we have that really help um, support a lot of this work, but um, wishful thinking and imagination alone isn't um, isn't going to get you very far with a grounded spiritual practice. There's another thing I wanted to um, mention is another in the beginning, especially when we were talking about all of this. Another thing that drew my attention was how what you're describing is in some ways similar to the again, for lack of a better word, witchcraft practice in mainland Europe of a spirit familiar. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk about the similarities and differences between spirit marriage and the, the pact with the spirit familiar, because there is a, there is, there are a lot of overlaps and perhaps in some of these situations, there actually, there is marriage with the familiar too, in some way or another. But I mean, again, when we're saying marriage, I, I think maybe for for clarity, we need to also realize that marriage should just mean marriage, actual marriage, not just like a you know some kind of business relationship. All relationships are transactional in nature, but a marriage has a romantic component. And I wouldn't necessarily say a familiar is always romantic. Yet there are distinct parallels, and I was wondering if you could speak on that. Yeah, yeah. So great. Uh, point the though I again like I gave, gave my disclaimer for the term spirit I'll give you my disclaimer for the word marriage <laughs> marriage is this large umbrella term that 
is the closest thing that we have for understanding a bonded, committed relationship. But marriage, especially historically, has meant many, many different things at different times to different people. Even contemporary marriages look vastly different from relationship to relationship. So it's really about relationship design and intention. And there are marriages that that are not necessarily sexual. I mean, I think of the Mathers marriage uh, as an example of, you know, a a more um, magical union versus a sexual one. So marriage can look like a lot of different things, but by and large, and, and when I interviewed Frater Lux, who's the ceremonial magician that I talked to about the Holy Guardian Angel, he said, well, you know, marriage isn't necessarily the wrong concept, but we have so many or the wrong word to use about what happens in this type of a deep union. It's just, we have so many preconceived ideas or so many prejudices around what marriage is, that it should be this romantic or even sexual uh, kind of agreement which hasn't necessarily been the case, right? Historically, marriages were made for all kinds of different purposes. Um, and I will say, you know, in my own spirit marriage, although it started out very erotic, it actually, um, when the marriage happened, it was much more contractual. It was much more about uh, me becoming an advocate for uh, for the uh, the people, my, my spirit, husband is a, is a fairy person. And it became much more about me being advocate for the other world and for the, the co-creative relationships between humans and the other world and him um, upholding my work. So it was sort of like, I'll take your people as my people and my people as your people. And we will have this sort of co-creative relationship. And it was much less romantic than I expected the marriage to be, but that's, that's how it played out for me. So, you know, the idea of the familiar spirit, uh, going back to your uh, question about the, the European uh, witchcraft, um, Emma Wilby's work, cunning, um, cunning people and familiar spirits, I think has some really great examples. And I cite this in my research about um, the witch trials and some of the accounts of witches at the time that talked about being married to um, a sort of horned figure, what, you know, they supposed was the devil um, and having these intimate bonded relationships or marriage, they talk about, um, they even use the term husband um, or spouse with um, in, in a few of the interview accounts that come out of the, the witch trials. So there is this sort of, blurriness or a an understanding that not everybody's going to um, step into uh, that level of commitment or bond with a familiar spirit, but the potential is there. And I think that it personally, I think that it comes down to intention, purpose, and what the desired outcome of that relationship is just like you could have lots of different friends at varying levels of, of intimacy, right? And we're not even talking about physical intimacy, just like people that are your, your Anamkara, your soul friends uh, versus people that are in your social circle. Um, and you might have 
things that you do or projects that you work on, and then you might have a beloved or a, 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 a partner that you're married to and you're working on other kinds of projects. And we have a variety and that may change and shift and change throughout your life. Um, And what we, what I saw when I interviewed different people is some traditions it's, you know, like with the fairy tradition, as I cited um, that fairy is there once it's installed as a, as a, as a bonded or a, a um, merged commingled being it's, it's there and it's, it's not going anywhere. Um, but in other traditions, there might be relationships that are there for a while, and then they, um, you shift and grow and change. The work that you're there to do is complete, and you move on. Um, whether those constellate as marriages or not, I think really depend on the agreements between the humans and the, um, the beings that they're working with. I know it's not precise <laughs> as a researcher, we really like precise answers, but I, what I've seemed to have discovered is it's, there's a lot more fluidity. Um, and, and whenever someone says, well, this is the way it is. And this is the only way it is. I would find like someone who came along and said, Oh no, I've divorced a spirit before, or, Oh no, this is how it works in my tradition. So not a lot of hard and fast rules, unfortunately. Very interesting. Um, I have to say, um, well, one, I have to jump off here. Apparently, I have to, I have to pick up my kids from school. Just a minor detail. But um, <laughs> um, I do appreciate what you've been saying. And I want to kind of circle back a little bit about, I like how you were talking about having a guide, having an, uh, a teacher. I think that's probably the most ideal situation. I wanted to kind of touch on the pitfalls uh, a, a little bit more as well, um, because without a, a teacher or a you know standardized protocols like you were saying, um, I feel as though there probably could be some serious pitfalls, and we like to um, not ignore the uh, mental health aspect and angle to spiritual practice on our show, just because it is a reality. Um, I'm just wondering from your thoughts, um, from your experience, as far as pitfalls and dangers um, and mental health, what, you know, how do you navigate that when, when you're working with kind of a disincarnate spirit or being? Um, Because, I mean, you can go on YouTube right now and find a hundred videos on how to have sex with the demon. And I would uh, say it's probably not... (laughs) They're probably not the most healthy avenues for someone to go down. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that generally? And before you answer, I just want to say thank you because I do have to jump off. Um, really appreciate you coming on. You're welcome, Dominic. It's been a pleasure to be here. Um, such a great question. It's a really big question. Yeah, no, I mean, the challenge, right, is that in the current climate of psychological and psychotherapeutic modalities by and large, there is a rush to diagnose, right? And a lack of understanding around paranormal or psycho-spiritual gifts, talents, openings, etc. And there is the very real pitfalls of um, 
rushing in where angels fear to tread, you know, to borrow a turn of phrase, um, and, and sort of moving into certain practices and certain things that kind of dismember, unravel, open up the psyche and without a strong container or group or lineage or teacher to hold you when that unraveling or that undocking happens, which is by and large what these, it's by and large part of the initiatory process of the spirit marriage or the spirit companion relationship is there's this reweaving that can often happen. Um, And so if we don't have a prepared container, if we don't have a, a strong foundation beneath us or something that holds us when that unraveling process happens, it can just unravel us. Right. And that can lead to the kind of, um, lack of discernment, uh, mental uh, deterioration, uh, psycho-spiritual collapse that, that you see happen um, in some circles where people sort of rush into advanced practices without the proper preparatory um, work. And I think that that's why traditions like ceremonial magic um, really offer the the container the um the the tools the steps to go through to prepare yourself because you know the unraveling it, it when done in a proper way allows for more of the the numinous the divine the the sort of extra human intelligence to come forward in the magician in the practitioner but um you want to have really laid the foundation for that so that, you know, I call it self-excavation work. And this is really what I've oriented my practice around right now is really supporting people who maybe aren't called to a specific tradition that holds spirit marriage. I have a lot of people uh, that are my students that, and, and clients that are, for example, being called into a deepening relationship with the beloved dead. And there aren't necessarily, um, there isn't necessarily lineages or protocols out there for beloved dead type spirit marriages. And so what became really clear to me was that I was being um, called to create a kind of intrafaith here's the foundation. Here's the way we build the foundation. Here's the structure container for this kind of work. And then, um, so I needed to be able to create that and then also refer people to deepening traditions or deepening practices with specific teachers or specific lineages. um, If they were being pulled in that direction, say like a particular deity was calling to them and I needed to be able to point them into the tradition or the lineage that was going to help them deepen with that specific deity. So I think that, you know, my book is certainly designed to, you know, the, the last third of the book is what are the practices? What are the things that need to be put into place that help, uh, as I've said, a safe, sane, um, practice of spirit marriage be fostered. I just wanted to thank you on that note for being such a wonderful, eloquent guest. 
on the show. And I wanted to ask you where people may find you and where they may find your material and how they might get in touch with you. Yeah. So my book is out. It's called Spirit Marriage. You can find it on most um, online resellers, book sales, and, um, and some bookstores are carrying it. And uh, you can go to my website, Dr. Megan Rose, which is D-R-M-E-G-A-N-R-O-S-E.com and uh, find information about the group programs, the practices, the, the one-on-one support and my book and a variety of other, you know, free teachings and um, materials that I have on my website. And then, you know, if you are having an experience of spirit marriage, or if you know of a historical account of it that you think, you know, maybe you've read the book and you're like, oh, she didn't include this example. Um, you can go to spiritmarriage.com and share your story with me. I'm always collecting research. I'm always continuing to collect stories as part of this sort of ongoing project of bringing spirit marriage out of sort of the the shadows or the biggest thing we're not talking about <laughs> into uh, more common conversation and and um, knowledge. Excellent. Excellent. That's great. Well, I think this is, you know, this is such an interesting subject that people who are just in the everyday Western world may not even realize exists. So I think it's something just really worth looking at. And I appreciate you coming on to the show, giving us all of your, all of your time and energy and taking so much painstaking effort to explicate these these nuances of what these relationships might actually look like and what they, what they're like as a lived reality. So I, I just wanted to thank you and wish you the very best on your work. And hopefully uh, anybody who found what you had to say as interesting as we did now has the means to acquire your book and connect with you if they seek to and learn more about this subject. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking with you both today. All right, that was Dr. Megan Rose speaking about uh, spirit marriage uh, within the context of uh, sacred um, eroticism. We'd like to thank her for coming on the show. Uh, It's a very interesting subject and one that is more traditional than people might realize. It's common in many cultures. And because of that, we were interested in having a show to discuss it. And this, like another interview we recently did, uh, we want to advise our listeners too that this we try, you know we we had a juggling schedule juggling issue with this guest for a while. Um, so we noticed uh, during our recording that she had become uh, very popular on the podcast circuit, and we're very happy that she was able to develop that popularity and get her book out there because it's such such an unusual, interesting subject. But normally we uh, we do, of course, tend towards more marginal folks and topics. So I did want to advise our regular listeners that um, you know this originally would have been a little bit more marginal of a discussion, a little bit more um, you know a little bit more unusual. Well, it 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 is quite a marginal topic, 
still, even though, as we discussed in the show, and as you just mentioned, it is an actual, it is actually a pretty traditional um, uh, belief or practice or both. The spirit marriage um, phenomenon and belief, like we like we mentioned, it is kind of baked into our cultures, um, and not just you know Western culture. It's you find it in Eastern culture and, and all cultures. Um, but it is like, like we said, kind of hidden in plain sight. So it is interesting to kind of bring it out into the light and, and talk about it. It's an interesting book. Yeah, we'd like to thank Megan Rose for coming on our show. Wish her the best and you know, also the best in her future endeavors. So do you have a book for us today, Dom? Yes, today I'm going to review a book that I'm actually currently still in the middle of, but um, it is so interesting, I figured I'd I'd use it for this segment. Uh, It's called Greek Buddha, and it is by Christopher Beckwith, and it's basically a survey of the earliest Greek accounts of Buddhism, which... uh, also turn out to be the actu- actually the earliest documented accounts of Buddhism in general. Um, the focus is on Pirho, which I'm not sure how to say his name exactly, but um, Pirho was a part of Alexander's um, expedition and campaign into India, and he experienced uh, Early, the earliest forms of Buddhism, only maybe a few hundred years after the death of the Buddha. Um, and he brought this uh, practice back to the Hellenistic world, and he is known as one of the early skeptics. And he integrated this Greek kind of skepticism with this Indian uh, early Buddhism and came out with quite a unique uh, system, which was pretty influential on the philosophers uh, following him um, unbeknownst to them the degree to which a lot of these ideas were actually imported from India and the Buddhist uh, practices and beliefs. So extremely interesting book. Mr. Beckwith talks about early Buddhism, the similarities and differences with uh, Pirho's skepticism um, kind of runs through each one uh, talks about the life of Pirho and uh, the students of of Pirho. So uh, overall, very interesting, great addition to just general knowledge of religion in general, and uh, a way to a nice way to look at the interpenetration uh, that religions had and have, and how they influenced each other. Uh, they weren't as separate as we like to imagine. So again, Greek Buddha, Pirho's Encounter with Early Buddhism in Central Asia by Christopher Beckwith. All right, and that's a wrap. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We appreciate your attention to the show and your investment in it. Please feel free to give us a like, subscribe if you enjoy. You can find us through all of the usual channels. And until next time. All right, thank you for listening.